I'll say just a few words about this book uh, before I introduce Leon. I had the privilege of reading an early draft of this manuscript, and I was already familiar with Leon's work uh, on U.S. policy in the Middle East going back to the early 1990s. Uh, I had helped uh, edit a paper that, C- that Cato published in August of 2003, which in some respects formed kind of the, the kernel of what became Sandstorm. Uh, and, you know, from the very beginning, Leon has impressed me as knowledgeable and opinionated. There are a lot of knowledgeable and opinionated people in this town, but he's also, and I think equally important, a very original thinker. And and let's be honest, because original thinking is really desperately re- needed right now against this backdrop <clears throat> excuse me, of quagmire in Iraq, fighting in southern Lebanon, a nuclear crisis with Iran, and the moribund, I think that's the best I can say about it, the moribund Israeli-Palestinian peace process, it seems clear that U.S. policy in the Middle East has failed to advance American national interest. And yet, even as the mystique of American power slips away by the day, too few people, I think, kind of have contemplated the ramifications of this shift and come up with some new solutions. In Sandstorm, Leon surveys the historical evolution of what he calls the U.S. Middle East paradigm and concludes that its costs have outweighed its benefits. He argues instead for a policy of constructive engagement from the Middle East, whereby the United States would transfer greater responsibility for security in the area to other global players while encouraging the formation of regional security institutions. And I think I'm happy to say uh, it's an idea whose time might finally have come. Uh, I'll note a few of the several positive reviews of the book, including in the journal Middle East Policy, which praised Sandstorm for, quote, pushing the reader outside the worn-out language of the Arab-Israeli conflict and the Middle East peace process and the conventional terminology of foreign policy. His style complements the boldness of his suggestions and the strength of his argumentation in achieving his primary objective, stimulating new thinking about the U.S. role in the Middle East. James Fallows, national correspondent for the Atlantic Monthly, writes, The United States needs a fundamental reconsideration of its approach to the Persian Gulf and the Middle East, and Sandstorm is a big help in this effort. The situation in the Middle East today is dire. It is extremely difficult, even painful, to squarely and honestly discuss the U.S. role and even harder to come up with creative solutions to what have so, for so long seemed intractable, intractable problems. And I want to congratulate, congratulate Leon for tackling uh, this controversial and dif- difficult subject, and I, I really want to thank him sincerely for writing such a timely book, and it's an honor to introduce him today. Dr. Leon Hadar is a research fellow in foreign policy studies at the Cato Institute. He's written on global politics and economics for a number of newspapers and magazines, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, Chicago Tribune, Foreign Affairs, Foreign Policy, World Policy Journal, and the Middle East uh, Journal Middle East Policy. He's been interviewed by quite a number of broadcast outlets, including CNN, BBC, CBC, and Fox News. He's also covered uh, U.S. foreign policy and U.S. issues for a number of international newspapers, including as the U.N. United Nations correspondent for the Jerusalem Post. He's taught at a number of academic institutions, including American University. And in addition to his affiliation with Cato, he's been affiliated with other think tanks, such as the Institute on East-West Security Studies in New York and the Center for International Development and Conflict Management at the University of Maryland. 
He's a graduate of Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and he earned his master's degrees from the schools of journalism and international affairs in the Middle East Institute at Columbia University, and he earned his Ph.D. in international relations from American University. In addition to Sandstorm, Leon is also the author of Quagmire, America in the Middle East, which was published by Cato in 1992. Please join me in welcoming Leon Hadar. Thank you, Chris, and thank you for coming. Uh, <clears throat> timing in life is everything, and uh, someone even suggested that I uh, orchestrated the current crisis in the Middle East in order to get some buzz for my book. Uh, and uh, talk about uh, bad timing. In 1992, uh, the Cato Institute uh, published uh, my first book. Uh, the title was, get this, Quagmire, America in the Middle East. Uh, this was published, unfortunately, a year after uh, the first Gulf War, uh, uh, after the um, defeat of uh, George Bush I, uh, the start of uh, the era of Bill Clinton and Bill Gates, uh, you know, the end of history, uh, the dawn of the age of uh, globalization and the Internet. And people were asking, you know, what Wegmeyer in the Middle East? Where is even the Middle East? Uh, now, the editor of uh, Sandstorm uh, cautioned me that it's not very dignified uh, to brag, I told you so. Uh, uh, but I, since I recall the famous pundit in Washington who uh, a few days or weeks before the U.S. attacked uh, uh, Belgrade uh, uh, suggesting that uh, nations with McDonald's don't attack other nations with McDonald's. Uh, I thought to myself, uh, you know, bleep bleep dignity, and uh, I decided to uh, quote a bit uh, for my first book in uh, Sandstorm. I'll just read you a few, uh, one or two paragraphs, and uh, take into consideration again that this was written in. Uh, it was published in 1992 and written in 1991. The successful military conclusion of the war against Iraq created unrealistic expectations that were fanned by President Bush rhetoric. The outcome of the Gulf War illustrates the policy dilemma that Washington faces in the Middle East, that the goals that were enunciated by President Bush, President Bush I, Rhetoric about establishing democracy in the Middle East and making peace between Israelis and Arabs have only created unfulfilled expectations that are bound to lead to new American commitments and entanglements. Americans who thought that it was difficult to bring democracy and free markets to the former Soviet Union that had strong historical ties to the West will discover that trying to implant those concepts in Middle East systems that have just emerge from the Middle Ages is a long and almost impossible mission. Neoconservative intellectuals in the United States, again this is in 1992, insist that the global spread of democracy will also produce an increase in pro-American sentiments. But that is not the case in the Middle East where anti-Americanism pervades the Arab and Muslim worlds and stems from resentment of both the tacit Arab-Israeli alliance and the direct American intervention in the Middle East, hence the chances of making the Middle East safe for democracy, along with Washington's power to move the region's states in that direction, 
are extremely limited. Washington will ultimately begin to feel the regional political repercussions of the Gulf War. Again, I wrote in 91. Middle East societies have always exhibited delayed reaction to domestic and regional crisis. The continuing socioeconomic problems in the Arab world, coupled with growing hostility towards Washington because of its support for Israel and its war against Iraq, could contribute to similar delayed reactions to the Gulf War. We might even see a resurgence of Saddamism, combination of Arab radicalism and Islamic fundamentalism that might as well outlive Saddam itself. The United States and the conservative Arab regimes would then face a regional anti-American intifada that would threaten American interests as well as pro-American governments in the Middle East. Uh, I also had two chapters in the book about what I predicted was going to be growing tensions between Europe and the United States uh, over the Middle East. Uh, again, this, this was written, they said, 14 years ago after the first Gulf War, and it's not very surprising that after 9-11 and um, also uh, during the second Gulf War, a lot of people sent me emails and suggested that I should write a sequel, uh, you know, Quagmire 2, and this is exactly what I had done. Uh, I also should mention that each time we had uh, uh, one of those tipping points in Iraq, uh, if you recall, the toppling of Saddam Hussein's statue, uh, uh, the capturing of Saddam, the, the killing of his sons, the first election, you know, the purple finger. Uh, unfortunately, now they're giving us the other finger, it seems. Uh, but in any case, uh, after every tipping point, uh, people would uh, either, some of them hoped and some of them warned me that, uh, uh, you know, I'll probably prove to be wrong. But I think now at the, the back, against the backdrop of, as Chris mentioned, of what's happening in the Middle East, I think it's very difficult for someone to argue that the United States is not descending into some sort of a quagmire in the Middle East. Now, I, I'm not auditioning for a role of a Middle East psychic in, uh, you know, one of those shows like The Dead Zone or The Medium. What I'm trying to do is basically make a point that the central thesis that I advanced in my earlier book were sustained and are relevant today as they were 14 years ago. What is my goal is basically to re-examine and rethink U.S. policy in the Middle East, which was fashioned during the Cold War and which I call the Middle East paradigm. Now, let me give you a short definition of what I call the Middle East paradigm, the beliefs and assumptions that have guided those making and analyzing U.S. policy in the Middle East for most of the 20th century. You have to remember that uh, in many respects, the Cold War started on the periphery of the Middle East and the Eastern Mediterranean, Turkey, Greece, and, and, and Iran, uh, after the United States replaced uh, Great Britain as a, the major Western power in the region. And the Cold War actually ended on the periphery of the Middle East in Afghanistan. The, the Middle East was a major geoeconomic and geostrategic arena uh, during the Middle East. Now, let me summarize, you know, there are, when I talk about the Cold War, the old Middle East paradigm, if you will, there are three components there. One is geostrategy. Uh, 
which I think all of us are familiar with. The U.S. leads basically a strategy to contain the Soviet Union in the Middle East. As I said earlier, it replaced Great Britain and also France as the major Western power in the region, protecting uh, Western interests in the region. The Soviet was clearly an aggressive global power with an ideological disposition that was regarded as a threat very much like Nazi Germany during World War II. Hence the willingness on the part of the United States during the Cold War to pay the cost of maintaining a strong presence and commitment in the Middle East, the containment policy in the region. The other thing was geoeconomic. That's the second component. Since the end of World War II, the, U the U.S. basically assumed the responsibility of protecting the free access of the Western economy, including Western Europe, Japan, and South Korea, to the energy resources in the Persian Gulf through very costly partnership with Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, and the other Arab oil-producing states. The Americans basically were willing to provide those nations, those economies, a free ride. You know, we'll protect, we are willing basically to serve as a protector of the access to the oil resources uh, in the region. And I think that can only be explained in the context of the Cold War, since, as I mentioned several times in my, in my book, and when, when we can come to that later, the U.S. is not dependent at all on oil resources from the Middle East. It, the United, it's uh, Europe, Japan, and South Korea that are. Three, idealism. This is the third component, or if you will, Israel. Israel was established in the aftermath of the European Holocaust, and uh, America, the U.S., the United States, the American political elites and public uh, decided that they were willing to uh, provide Israel as a democratic Jewish state in the Middle East with a certain margin of security vis-a-vis -vis the Arab states. Uh, and uh, this eventually, although it was based initially on uh, idealistic uh, argument and also mm -hmm. responded to domestic political pressure, it eventually intertwined uh, with the Middle East paradigm, which made it you know, when you talk about the cost of Middle East policy, there was the need to juggle U.S. commitment to Israel with U.S. commitment and support for the Arab states, especially the Arab oil-producing states. Uh, so when the United States was trying to make peace between Israelis and Arabs, it wasn't so much that it was concerned over the fact that Jews were killing Arabs and vice versa. It was really to bring a, a certain balance into the Middle East paradigm, that we can support both Israel and both the Saudis. You can do that only by uh, trying and achieving peace in the region. Now, my argument is that the Middle East paradigm became almost part of the genetic makeup, if you will, of uh, policymakers, journalists, and lawmakers in wa Washington. It actually exp explains the Pavlovian response in Washington, whenever someone says Middle East crisis, you know, it immediately ignites those memories, especially of the 1973 war, the notion that if you have a Middle East crisis, the Soviet Union is going to get involved, uh, we'll have an oil embargo, Israel's security will be threatened. And, you know, those were the images of uh, 1973. And se since then, every time there is a Middle East crisis, I think that's the images that come to mind. 
as far as policymakers in the region are concerned. Now, my, the main contention in my book is that the changing realities of the world and the Middle East, uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the changing relationship between the United States and Europe, and the transformation of the Arab-Israeli conflict from a major international dispute into a more regional and local conflict have made the Middle East paradigm obsolete in some respect. And I suggest that we re-examine those three components of the Middle East paradigm. Look at the geostrategy, strategic issue. The demise of the Soviet Union, and clearly the main rationale of the Middle East paradigm, uh, suggests that, uh, you know, in many respects, there isn't really any major geopolitical outside power that threatens uh, Western interests in the Middle East. If anything, one can make the argument that the U.S. intervention in the Middle East since the end of the Cold War actually helped ignite anti-Americanism, terrorism, 9-11, eventually the Gulf War. And you have to ask yourself, why can't the balance of power in the region be maintained through a, a regional a security arrangement, as well as I suggest in my book, a more commitment on the part of the Europeans. My argument that is, if you look at the map and the statistic, uh, the Middle East is for the European, especially the Eastern Mediterranean states, what Mexico and Latin America is for the United States. It's the strategic backyard. I mean, if you take into consideration geographical proximity, economic ties, as well as demographic, this is their Mexico. And my question is, you know, why shouldn't the Europeans begin paying some of the cost in terms of protecting their interests in the Middle East, which are immediate and urgent and are very different than the United States? If Iraq, for example, if Iran, for example, develops a nuclear weapon, it would be able to attack Paris. It won't be able to attack Los Angeles. And you have the demographic issues that all of you are familiar. Again, the geoeconomic issue. Since the, the economies of the EU, as well as Japan, and not the US are dependent on, on oil resources from the Middle East, and especially since the Europeans have become in, in some ways, in many ways, economic competitors of the United States, the question you have, to, you have to ask yourself, why should the United States continue to subsidize free security protection in the Middle East for the Europeans? It doesn't make sense to me. We should bring an end to free riding, and maybe if we'll do that, if we'll create incentives for them to do that, they'll spend less money on the wasteful welfare programs and more money on defense. Uh, again, one of the points that I make in my book, and I, I know it goes very much against the conventional wisdom because people take it for granted that we are dependent on oil from the Middle East. The fact, the fact is that uh, America gets about 30% of its foreign energy sources from Latin America. You can make an argument that the United States is more dependent on Latin American oil, whatever that means, than on Middle Eastern oil. In fact, one of the last figures that I saw that Daniel Jurgen in the Financial Times, he actually argues that 90% of America's 
crude supplies, if you take into consideration domestic production, do not originate in the Middle East. So the United States is not dependent on oil in the Middle East. If anything, the Europeans get most of their energy resources, as well as Japan and maybe in the future China, from the Middle East. Also, another uh, conventional wisdom is that, you know, the, you know, whereas the European and the Japanese uh, pay a lot for their gas, you know, the United States supposedly, or American consumer, uh, gets cheap and affordable oil. That is not the case. I mean, if you go today to your, the, the pump and you pay X, X dollars to, to fill your tank, the fact of the matter is that you have to factor into that cost also the cost of several wars in the Middle East, 9-11, the Department of Homeland Security, which means that actually you pay much more for the gas that you pay today than the actual price. Now, idealism, or what about Israel, which is the question that always comes up when I raise this issue. Well, Israel today is the most powerful military force in the region. It has nuclear weapons. It has one of the most advanced high-tech economies in the world. It has peace with Egypt, Jordan, and other Arab states. It has the military capability to deal with any perceived threat that you can imagine, including a nuclear Iran. One of the arguments that can be made that in the same way that uh, we have a situation in which India and Pakistan are both nuclear weapons, they deter each other. It's kind of a regional mutual assured destruction. I don't see why that cannot happen in the Middle East if Iran and when Iran will become a nuclear weapon. Israel has nuclear weapon. It can deter Iran and Iran can deter Israel. And we have the same situation that we have in South Asia. The main threat that Israel is facing today is not a lack of U.S. support, it's the continuing control of the Palestinians, which threatens, I think, in the long run, Israel, uh, uh, Israel uh, demographic, uh, Israel's role as a Jewish and demograph uh, democratic state, which I think most Israelis recognize today. And uh, as far as, you know, we talk about Lebanon today, Israel, you know, deals with the threat in Lebanon. It clearly doesn't need U.S. support to, to deal with that. It faces a lot of dilemmas, moral, strategic, and other, in terms of dealing with non-state uh, guerrilla threat. But it has nothing to do, and it doesn't need, again, U.S. support. If anything, one of the arguments that I make in my book is that, uh, to some extent, the U.S. ability to resolve the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, which is really a tribal conflict in a civil war in the Holy Land, if you will, is quite limited. The U.S. can act as a facilitator on some level when both sides decide that they want to make peace, but the U.S. cannot uh, deliver a peace agreement, as many people think, in between Israelis and Palestinians. If anything, as we saw in the last Camp David agreement, U.S. involvement tends to create high expectation and creates eventually a backlash against uh, the United States. Most of my book is devoted to discussing why the paradigm, the Middle East paradigm, has not changed after the Cold War. It remained in place, as I suggest, and it created the conditions for 9-11, eventually uh, the, the, the Iraq War. As I, I paraphrase what MacArthur, General MacArthur said once about all generals, Aging foreign policy paradigms do not simply fade away. Now, why didn't the paradigm die? You know, there are many reasons. There are inside-the-box factor, uh, 
bureaucratic and congressional pressures, uh, institutional inertia. I think the most important factor has to do with the international system, the fact that the Soviet Union collapsed. We had a unipolar system. Uh, uh, there are no more check and balances as far as U.S. power is concerned. So, you know, U.S. does what the U- U.S. can, which means, you know, if they want to dominate the Middle East, they'll do it. The other side of the coin is I think that many policymakers think that uh, by controlling the oil resources in the Middle East, the U.S. would have leverage over potential global competitors like the EU and maybe China at one point. You know, we own the gas station and you have to pay for it uh, in diplomatic terms. Now, from the Gulf, the first Gulf War to the second Gulf War, there's been an effort to maintain U.S. hegemony. Under Bush the first and uh, Clinton the first, uh, I think what you had is what one can call a kind of cost-free Pax Americana. There was the dual containment policy vis-a-vis Iran and Iraq. There were attempts to uh, create the impression that the U.S. is doing something to resolve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But eventually... The hegemony ignited, I think, led to 9-11, first of to the Second Intifada and then to 9-11, demonstrating that if you want hegemony, you have to pay for it. And I think uh, the debate today in Washington is really between the, the Bush vision of a uh, democratic empire and uh, those in the Republican and Democratic Party who support what I call empire light. The notion, you know, that the U.S. can still maintain its hegemony uh, through, uh, you know, if we'll just cooperate with our allies, if we try to resolve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, things are going to work, like the good old days of Clinton and Bush the first. What I'm proposing is a new Middle East paradigm, a process of gradual, constructive disengagement from the Middle East that, as I said earlier, will create incentives for the creation of new regional balance of power system, will uh, make it more likely that the U.S. will play a more active role in the region. And by the way, I'm, um, I'm, I've just, as you probably have uh, read, uh, that the EU is actually now, I think it's good news, uh, will probably be willing to uh, deploy peacekeeping troops uh, in Lebanon. Uh, and eventually, in terms of the big picture, what I have in mind is uh, the, a consortium of great power along the lines of the Congress of Vienna system. I call it the Northern Alliance, a kind of uh, a, 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 an alliance of sort between the United States, the EU, and uh, Russia, uh, which will have really two major challenges. One, to deal with the instability in the so-called arc of instability, the Islamic arc of instability, ranging from the Balkan to China, and two, uh, try to co-opt China and eventually India into this great power system. Now, before I finish, I just want to make one more important point, which I think is very relevant, which is the cost of maintaining hegemony in the Middle East goes beyond military and economic resources. We have to remember that the collapse, since the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, we really don't have a stable nation-state system in the region. One of my main arguments is that the lack of legit- legitimacy of political 
regi- of regimes in the Middle East is not lack of democracy, not because of the lack of democracy, but because of the lack of nas- a sense of national identity. Uh, Saddam Hussein was really a very good example of that, uh, using military power, uh, both internationally and domestically, in order to create a sense of Iraqi national identity. So what you have in the Middle East today is basically not stable nation-state, but a mishmash of tribal, religious, ethnic, national, and regional players combining in shifting pattern of alliances. Now, historian Carl Brown, and I think I always like that uh, metaphor, compared the Middle East to a kaleidoscope. He said, outsiders like the United States get involved and try to tilt the kaleidoscope. He said, just as with the tilt of the kaleidoscope, the many tiny pieces of colored glass all move to form a new configuration. So any diplomatic initiative or military intervention sets a new realignment of the player. This explains why foreign intervention becomes so costly. Unintended consequences in the Middle East are not the exceptions, exception, but are, is basically the rule of the game. And the Iraq war is an excellent example. I think we are witnessing what's happening now. The United States devastated Iraq, which was the counterbalance to Iran. Uh, it encouraged the, the rise of a pro-Iranian Shiite regime for election in Baghdad. Uh, it uh, encouraged the election in Lebanon, which strengthened the power of Hezbollah. As a result of all of this, uh, Iran has emerged as the major power in the Persian Gulf, and with its ally, allies Hezbollah and to some extent Hamas decided to challenge the proxy of the United States, Israel. So, you know, now we have this new crisis, we have this new war, the kaleidoscope is tilted, and the United States is trying again to get involved and, you know, uh, resolve the conflict until the next conflict. And by the way, I think one of the problems that we are going to face in the coming months, if Iraq, if Iraq will be split into three mini-states, is the possible, very much like with Israel, the possible intervention of Turkey in Iraq, especially in northern Iraq, in order to prevent the Kurds from establishing or reasserting their power, especially over Kirkuk. Uh, so basically, outside powers have attempted to establish hegemony in the Middle East in the past. I mean, the best example is uh, Great Britain, uh, Empire. We saw that movie. It's called uh, Lawrence of Arabia. And uh, many of the characters and the plot lines are very similar. If you go back to that time, uh, you know, the Hashemite and the Saudis trying to bring peace between Jews and, and Arabs in the Holy Land, maintaining the unity of Iraq. That's an old story. What the neocons, I think, try to do as far as this issue is concerned is provide a, a Wilsonian soundtrack, if you will, uh, to this movie, uh, which is the democratic empire. Um, as I suggested in my book, it's as though Queen Victoria, the imperialist, and Woodrow Wilson, uh, wanted to make the world safe for democracy, got married and had a child, uh, which is called democratic empire. It's a very... Uh, ugly child and and I think one of the problems when you deal with a democratic empire is that there is a major contradiction between the goals of an empire which is achieving hegemony and order and the goals of democracy which is empowering the people you want to control with power 
to challenge you. I mean, it's like, the, if you saw the television commercial, it's like the man who is sticking it to himself, you know. Uh, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And we saw, and we see, we saw that happening in Iraq. Uh, um, I think in, if you look at the historical context, uh, President Bush was responsible for probably the two most revolutionary events that have taken place in the Middle East since the Iranian Revolution in 1979, which is the rise of the you know, radical Shiite regime uh, with ties to Iran uh, in, in, in Baghdad, uh, which I think is going to transform the Middle East in terms of the relationship between Shiite and Sunnis and so on. And the other one is the election of Hamas, also known as the Ma- Muslim Brotherhood in uh, the West Bank and Gaza, which is going to have a lot of effects also not, re- not only on the Israeli-Palestinian issue as, as it is, but also the rest of the Arab-Sunni world. So I, I think you see now, which is kind of ironic, I saw an article by Edward Litvak, uh, who uh, the Wall Street Journal suggests that maybe now we should bring Assad uh, back to uh, Lebanon to establish order after we kicked him out of there in, as part of the effort to establish democracy in Lebanon. And again, everyone is talking now, how can we bring back uh, Assad into the picture? Uh, I'm beginning to worry that at some point uh, people might ask, uh, maybe we should bring Saddam back uh, to Iraq as a part to stabilize Iraq. Anyway, I'll be happy uh, later to answer questions if you have about more current developments. Thank, thank you very much, Leon. Um, I'm pleased to welcome two distinguished speakers to comment on Leon's book. I'll introduce them both. Uh, Jeffrey Kemp is the Director of Regional Strategic Programs at the Nixon Center. He received his Ph.D. in political science at MIT and his master's and bachelor's degrees from Oxford University. He served in the White House during the first Reagan administration and was special assistant to the President for National Security Affairs and senior director for Near East and South Asian Affairs on the National Security Council staff. Prior to his current position at the Nixon Center, he was a senior associate at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where he was the director of the Middle East Arms Control Project. In the 1970s, he worked in the Defense Department in the policy planning and program analysis and evaluation offices and made major contributions to studies on U.S. security uh, on um, uh, policy options for Southwest Asia. In 1976, while working for the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations, he prepared a widely publicized report on U.S. military sales to Iran. His recent publications include Stopping the Iranian Bomb, which appeared in the summer 2003 edition of The National Interest, and most recently in the current issue of The National Interest, The East Moves West. Our second commentator is James Pinkerton. He's a columnist for Newsday. Uh, for TCS Daily and a contributing editor to the American Conservative. He's a fellow also at the uh, New America Foundation and the Free Enterprise Fund. He's a contributor to the Fox News Channel and a regular panelist on Fox's News Watch program. He worked in the White House domestic policy offices of Presidents Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush and in the 1980, 1984, 1988, and 1992 presidential campaigns. He has also been a member of the Board of Contributors at USA Today and a lecturer at the Graduate School of Public 
uh, political management at George Washington University. He's the author of the widely acclaimed book, What Comes Next, The End of Big Government and the New Paradigm Ahead, published by Hyperion in 1995. And he's been published in, uh, widely, including in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Foreign Affairs, Fortune, and many others. Uh, let me introduce first Jeffrey Kemp. Thank you very much, uh, Chris. And um, let me say that when I was uh, working for Ronald Reagan, I had a baptism by fire during the Lebanon crisis of 82, 83. So a lot of this uh, material we're discussing today r rings awfully true to me. Um, we were in a quagmire then, and I think we are still in a quagmire. And in fact, my only... My major quibble, if you like, with Leon's book is the, is the title. I actually prefer the title Quagmire <laughs> because that means you are really bogged down and you don't know where to go, whereas sandstorms, they blow over pretty quickly. But uh, it's too late to change that now. But um, by and large, I accept his thesis about how we got to establish this Middle East paradigm how it was based on uh, the Cold War and something called the Soviet Union that we now have all forgotten about. And I also agree that we have to have a more creative way of thinking about what we do after Iraq. And I think the term constructive disengagement, if done gradually, as Leon suggested, is exactly what we should be thinking about. I'm not going to go through the book and, and sort of repeat what you've already heard, what I agree and disagree with. Um, I, I would prefer to talk a little bit about what I think the future challenges are for the United States and why this notion of constructive disengagement uh, is a notion that time has come. Um, if you think back to the uh, events since 9-11, um, we the United States launched two major wars to overturn regimes, Afghanistan and Iraq. And I, and I think it's important to draw a contrast between these two and how we handled it diplomatically. In the case of Afghanistan, the Bush administration made absolutely sure that before we went in, we had some of the key neighbors, particularly Russia, India and Iran, as well as Uzbekistan, on board. They agreed with our narrative that the Taliban had to go, and they were extremely cooperative. Um, in, and the Afghanistan war, as we know, went very well at that point in time. Uh, my judgment is that we were so pleased with the speed with which we toppled the Taliban that when it came to 2003, uh, and the challenge of Saddam Hussein. We forgot the lessons we'd learned in Afghanistan and essentially went to Iraq without taking into account, let alone consulting, with the key neighbors. In fact, if you go back and remember what uh, sort of philosophy and policy was in March 2003, it was that we're coming irrespective of what the neighbors think, and in the case of two of the neighbors, Syria and Iran, you better watch out because you may be next. And the message we were sending to our Arab friends, particularly Saudi Arabia and the Arab Gulf states is, 
we are not pleased with the way you are managing your affairs. We're going to set up a democracy in Iraq, and you better watch out because sooner or later you're going to have to change as well. So we had no buy-in from the neighborhood, and today we are in a quagmire in Iraq, and we're only going to get out of it if we can come up with a policy that is somehow acceptable to some of the key players in the neighborhood, particularly our friends. Now, we don't, we're not there yet. And this brings me to the reality that we're never going to get a consensus in the Gulf as to what sh the outcome in Iraq should be, be, primarily because Iran has a narrative which uh, assumes that at some point in the future it will be the hegemon. The Iraqis and the Saudis, as we can see now from their reaction to what's happening in Lebanon, are very worried about potential Iranian hegemony and uh, including possibly this Shiite arc. Um, and the small Gulf states are terrified. Um, they are very rich and they're very weak. Uh, they depend entirely for their survival on two very important issues aside from money, uh, foreign labor and American military power. And this brings me to the one point of Leon's book that I would like to sort of suggest be fleshed out a little more. Um, he's quite right to say that the United States does not get uh, most of its petroleum from the Middle East and that that petroleum, in fact, goes to Europe, Japan, China, uh, Korea. But I don't think that's relevant. I think what is relevant for our economy at this point in time is the price of oil. And if there is any uh, further flare-up in the uh, Gulf, if anything happened to Saudi Arabia, the price of oil would go through the ceiling, and we would suffer just as much as the Japanese uh, or the Europeans. So we have a vital strategic interest instability in the Gulf, primarily because we're so sensitive to the price of oil. Now, the way out of this, the way to disengage from this dependency is to have a very different energy policy to that which we currently have. We need to wean ourselves from petroleum dependency, particularly imported petroleum, wherever it comes from. But we're not going to do that overnight. This is impossible. So what's going to happen in the next uh, five to ten years? Um, here, I think the real challenge is that we have been weakened uh, because of Iraq. The Gulf remains very, very unstable and threatened. The dependency of the world, of which we're a part, uh, uh, it, on it, Gulf oil is going to grow, particularly if you look at the statistics of what China and India are expecting to import in the coming years. So who is going to essentially maintain some semblance of stability if not the United States? Now, it's certainly true that uh, other countries should be doing more, but the question is, could they do more? And I don't believe they can do very much more in the short run. Um, the Europeans simply don't have the military capabilities. Uh, what capabilities they do have they're actually being very helpful uh, in support of what's going on in Afghanistan. If you take out the British uh, component of uh, Europe's NATO uh, forces, there, there really is no substitute in the short run for American maritime and air power. And 
the Europeans are not going to change their welfare system and start spending enormous amounts of money on defense, at least not in a time frame that is of much interest to uh, those of us who worry about the next five to ten years. Um, that said, you know, I quite agree that the United States moment of hegemony in the Middle East is very transitory. Um, Elizabeth Monroe wrote a famous book about uh, Britain's moment in the Middle East, and that moment lasted from about 1919 uh, to 1971. I don't know what the time frame for the American moment will be, but certainly uh, it will pass. But just like in the case of Britain, it doesn't mean to say we will get out of the Middle East completely. We won't. We will do it uh, gradually, I hope, and that essentially is what Leon's thesis is. Let me just say a few words about the possibility that um, a northern alliance could do something constructive. Um, it's interesting that the Gulf Arab states are very eager to draw in the Europeans, including NATO as an institution, into their security uh, arena, primarily because they think this will provide an umbrella for continued American military presence. Uh, they're very sensitive to the fact that we're extremely unpopular, particularly with a lot of their populations. But if uh, somehow you could have a, a broader NATO role in the Gulf, that might make life politically easier for uh, some of the Gulf states. There was a, uh, a very important uh, decision taken at the NATO summit in 2004 uh, in Istanbul that established something called the Istanbul Cooperation Initiative. And last year, the first uh, visit of the NATO Secretary General to Qatar took place. And an effort is being made as we speak now to engage the NATO countries in security discussions with the Gulf states, but at a very low level, in the level of sort of anti-terrorism, counterintelligence, it's useful, it's important, but it is simply no substitute for the uh, American uh, military power, which is going to be formidable no matter what happens uh, in Iraq. That brings me to the second set of, uh, of uh, countries that I think we have to pay more attention to and where I really do think uh, our future is going to be very linked. I'm talking in particular about China and India. Um, Chris mentioned this piece I've just written, The East Moves West. Well, essentially the thesis is the following, that over the next 20 years, China and India are going to need more and more oil and gas from the greater Middle East and Central Asia. There's no way they can get out of this fix unless their economies collapse. They, have, uh, they are developing sort of uh, relationships with the region um, from Iran to Sudan and in the case of India, the, the small Gulf states that are really quite extraordinarily uh, close and developed. Um, India has a long history of being in the Gulf. There are, there are currently over three million Indian workers in the Gulf. The Indian military establishment is, is, is creating bilateral relationships with virtually all the Gulf states based on the assumption that they have a lot of common interests, it's next door, 
There are a billion Indians who need the energy and the Gulf states who need the support of countries as well as the United States for their future security. Um, so if you look at uh, the future trends, I think it's very important that the United States pay more attention to what China and India are doing. If you look, at, for instance, at China's uh, land logistical uh, developments, the railroads uh, and the roads that they're building across Central Asia uh, into Iran and Pakistan, this is all, uh, thing, I think, s symbolic of the fact that over the next 20, 25 years, they are going to move uh, west. And historically, of course, the Chinese were the superpower in the 13th and uh, 14th century. They had a fleet 10 times larger than anything the Europeans had. The Indians have already been in the Middle East for many, many years. In fact, we sometimes forget that most of the fighting done by the British in the Middle East in World War II was in fact done by the British India Army, Indian Army, which was, which was made up of Indian soldiers with British officers. So I guess my thought as I close here today is, I think, um, Leon, you're onto something here. Um, I think constructive disengagement doesn't mean the United States walks away from the region. We simply can't. But it does mean we have to take much more, pay much more attention to, A, the neighbors that, are, that, that we have to reach an agreement with uh, if Iraq is to be stabilized, and the uh, big countries to the east as well as those to the north. Thank you. Looks like a good idea. Yeah. Move this up. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, um, well, I kept hearing uh, Leon uh, and Jeffrey using the dreaded R word, which is realism, reality, uh, variations on that. I, it's probably premature to say we're all realists now, but we're getting there. Uh, um, Ambrose Bierce, the famous American wit and wag uh, from the last century, said that war is the devil's way of teaching Americans geography. <laughs> and um, I think the same applies to politics, history, uh, uh, human nature, and again, uh, 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 realism. Uh, um, as Leon points out in his book, and as Jeffrey pointed out in his comments, you know, we been down this road before in these very countries. Uh, we invaded, Iraq, not we, but the West uh, invaded, liberated, whatever you want to call it, Iraq in World War I. They did it again in World War II. Um, and again, even people who follow this stuff fairly closely, like me, are sort of reminded of things that are important to the people over there, like uh, Prime Minister Maliki in his comments saying, look, we went through this in 1991. Now they remember, the Iraqis that is, that 300,000 people were killed in a failed rebellion against Saddam Hussein, uh, most Americans uh, never noticed. And, uh, and it's still hard for us to process because it didn't happen to us. Uh, but again, we're learning, uh, walking in their moccasins now. And then Lebanon, the same thing. Uh, uh, Jeffrey was around for various uh, adventures and misadventures in, in Lebanon. Uh, uh, again, any book, and there's been quite a few, of which Leon's is probably the best, uh, um, that just reminds us of what happened and that this, these things aren't new. Uh, uh, is worth it. And, and I heartily endorse what Jeffrey said about uh, uh, this book needs to be fleshed out and, and updated constantly. I mean, the Cato Institute should find it in itself to figure out some way to do uh, like a little 
Blue Link, when I looked at some of these chapters, uh, um, Empire and Democracy, you know, it was written a year and a half ago probably, uh, published last year. Uh, does that, would, would that benefit from having a bunch of links every day added since then? Uh, costs of Empire, these are, cha- these are chap- or subchapter headings. Uh, the New Iraq. Uh, the Middle East and the European-American Rift. Um, all of these are just... Ba- and I know Leon has a blog, uh, globalparadigms.org, uh, um, which, he, which he updates pretty, pretty relentlessly. But nonetheless, uh, there's a challenge to think tanks, pe- staying on top of events, to not let a book get, get cold. There should be some uh, CD-ROM or, or updating approach on this. Uh, uh, um, and because, again, uh, uh, very poignantly, in another chapter heading... Uh, Suez Revenge. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Bob Novak will remember the 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 the, the um, uh, Suez Crisis of 1956, which has eerie, weird parallels to this. Uh, not many other people do, uh, just because they weren't born. Uh, it's not their fault. But nonetheless, all of us, uh, you know, have have a strong obligation to to, to learn about this, to to to, to see what happened. Um, okay, that's that's the praising part. A few quibbles and 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 and, and comments here. Number one, I, I just want to dwell on what Jeffrey said about uh, the oil issue. Uh, 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 it is something of a challenge to free traders to, to think about how we're going to resolve ourselves uh, uh, happily in the Middle East if the, the miracle of the marketplace means pouring in $150, or, or $150 billion or $200 billion a year in oil revenues to the Persian Gulf. That will be tough. Just, I'll leave it, uh, uh, again, whatever solutions one wants to come up with, uh, probably a bridge, uh, one or more uh, uh, free market uh, principles and laissez-faire principles. Uh, two, um, I think that Leon uh, uh, overstates the willingness of Europe uh, to get involved in this. Uh, um, I, I, I think that he mentioned uh, in a different context uh, uh, Edward Lutvak at, at CSIS, who I think wrote in Foreign Affairs about 11, 12 years ago one of the most poignant uh, 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 pieces about the post-heroic nature of Western societies. Uh, in a world of small families where people have one or two kids, uh, uh, they just don't want to part with them in wars the way they used to when it was five or six kids per family. It's a, it's a harsh way of saying it, uh, very Benthamite, but it's also, I think, very true. I think you're seeing it distinctly in... Uh, Iraq with the U.S. in terms of our willingness to go uh, 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 full bore. Uh, uh, I think the Israelis are, cl- especially after, after the incidents of yesterday in Bint Jubail, are having the same issue. Uh, 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 and I think the Europeans uh, feel it strongly too. I just think that the notion of a robust peacekeeping force, or with, with being able to shoot their way in if necessary, and so I think this is just not what any Western leader um, is is really contemplating. Uh, um, I, again, I certainly agree that the, the Middle East paradigm that Leon discusses is, is, is obsolete and needs to be replaced, but I'm a little puzzled over exactly uh, what we're going to be replacing it w- with. Uh, uh, the Northern Alliance sounds good. I think I read that in Dune one time. It sounded good to me in that. <laughs> uh, um, you know, uh, uh, Jeffrey mentioned the Istanbul group. Uh, there's a Shanghai Cooperation Organization. It's a little unclear to me which geopolitical structure is going to emerge, but I'll just... Uh, uh, comment a little bit on the one that I heard Leon mention just now, uh, the Congress of Vienna, which, you know, that worked out okay. That was like 100, 100 years of, of sort of peace and stability, but of course things move faster now. And I can't help but think that, you know, a couple processes that undid the, the Congress of Vienna may be undoing 
Leon's Congress of Vienna uh, 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 Part Two, and those two those two forces are you know were visible in the 19th century. They're, they're a lot more visible in the 21st century, I think. Uh, one is is nationalism and, and nationalist and slash religious passions. I've always thought that religion had a strong nationalistic component to it. It's very easy for a if you live in the Arab world to be a Muslim, it's very easy to be. If you live in the West to be a Christian, it's just sort of they, they kind of go together. So I sort of blend the two uh, together in, in terms of the political effect. If, if one were to update this further and think further about where things are headed in the Middle East, one would have to, I think, to look back to the 19th century. If Leon brings up 1815, then I'll bring up uh, 1807 uh, when uh, Johann uh, uh, Gottlieb Fichte uh, started issuing an appeal to the German nation. Uh, 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 about how Germany needed to, to repel the French. Well, the trick in that statement was there was no German nation in 1807. There was in Fichte's mind uh, uh, and Her- Herders and Hamans and all those other peoples, but there was no nation yet, and yet one emerged pretty quickly, as we all know, and changed, changed European history in the 19th and, and 20th century. So I, I suspect something like that is going on in the Arab world. Uh, Leon touches on that in the book, too, and the issue of pan-Arabism and whether or not it can be revived in a Shia-Sunni uh, split. I don't know, but I sort of suspect that uh, uh, something like that is rumbling uh, in the Arab and, and the Muslim world. The other factor is, is that's also accelerating uh, much more quickly these days is technology. Uh, you, know, you can make a pretty good case that much of, what, much of the geopolitics of the 19th century were functions of the railroad, the telegraph, the machine gun, uh, the artillery, uh, um, you know, again, think today in terms of telecommunications, uh, ballistic missiles, and of course uh, uh, WMDs. So I'm a little worried that you know a, a, a Congress of Vienna, and I would love to cover that as a journalist, and it'd be a lot of fun, and, and, and so on. Uh, um, you know, may be overwhelmed by uh, uh, the Russia events. I mean, you know, Kim Jong Il may not be part of this, may not get invited, um, and may find a way to break it up uh, on his own. I'm just uh, so as I think about Leon's next book, which I look forward to, and I hope I get invited back to, to be a commenter on that one too. Uh, uh, the quagmire sandstorm. I'm thinking, what's another word like that? Uh, uh, as I was thinking about it, trying to answer that question, I thought of. Uh, the TV show Babylon 5, anybody watch that except me? And, and uh, you remember, may remember the, there's a moment there where things about to cascade and the, and the, uh, the Vorlon ambassador says, uh, um, okay, the, there's no more, the pebbles tried and failed, there's no more voting, the, the avalanche has begun. Uh, 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 some, goodbye pebbles. And I sort of get the feeling with this, the, the rush of nationalism technology that something like that is coming. So, um, Leon, I'm not sure you want my help on this, but I, I think Avalanche uh, uh, may well be uh, uh, the most apt uh, follow-on for your next book on this trilogy. Thank you. Go ahead, Leon. If you wanted to just respond to a few of the things, and then we'll open it up for questions. Yeah. Thank you for the comments. Um, I just want to make two or three points. Uh, one, you have to remember that when we talk about the international system, you know, talk about domestic politics. When California gains more in population, you know, they get more seats in Congress. That's mechanism for change. That mechanism for change in the, in the international system, when a, a global power gains more in economic and uh, military power, there isn't a point in which, you know, the powers meet and they say, well, you know, you'll gain more, you have more power now, you'll, we'll give you more uh, responsibility and so on. 
The problem with this is that the changes tend to uh, occur during military crisis. Uh, one example is indeed the 1956 war. I once did an interesting experiment when I taught a course with my students to go and look at the New York Times and Washington Post and other newspapers. If you go back to the early 1950s, uh, the press, pundit and so on, still refer to Great Britain and France believe it or not, as great powers. I mean, they were already bankrupted economies. They were very weak. Uh, the Soviet Union wasn't mentioned as great power. So, you know, there is a process that takes place. And what I want to avoid is a situation in which the United States, uh, you know, as someone suggested, uh, you know, the Cold War will end and China will be the winner. I mean, you are in a point in which, you, you know, there's so much waste of resources uh, without other powers taking responsibilities. Uh, my view as far as the Congress of Vienna, of course, you know, it's... Uh, they, it's, uh, some would argue you know, it's, it's not relevant today because of many things, including the media, nationalism, and religion, and so on. But the fact of the matter is we could have chosen a different uh, policy, and this goes back to, Bob, even to the Clinton era. There wasn't any reason after the Soviet Union collapsed to antagonize the Russian and to continue to antagonize them, for example, on issues like human rights or Belarusia. We need the Russians, we need the Russians to work on some of those strategic issues. There wasn't any reason to antagonize the Europeans during the first Gulf War. Uh, the problem with the Bush administration policies is that what the Bush people want is basically we want to drive the car. Um, we want to, you know, we, we'll, we'll head the way towards some direction. The Europeans and the Russians, if they want, they can check the oil and uh, replace the tires, so to speak. We need to give them more responsibility. We, in order for this to work, and it doesn't have to be a structured co Congress of Vienna, we have to wa find ways to work with the Russians and the Europeans on many of this issue. If they don't get also incentives, uh, yeah, of course the Europeans, uh, as long as the, they don't get incentives for us, they won't do anything. You know, if you, had a, if you have a 45-year-old kid who still comes home with his laundry and expects his mom to uh, wash it for him, you know, he'll continue to do that forever until he's 80 years old. At some point you have to say, sorry, the, you know, the washing machine is not working. It's time for you to get a life. And I think that's what we need to do with the Europeans when we don't do that. Uh, you know, they don't feel any incentive to get more involved. And uh, we should do that. As far as the oil issue is concerned, of course, you know, we have a global oil market. I'm not suggesting that that is not the case. And, and you know, that different interpret, you know, Cato Institute, for example, believes very much in the free market and the notion that, you know, even Saddam Hussein will have to, se to sell oil. And there is the other point of view, which is more mercantilism, which suggests that oil and energy are strategic resources and so on. And U.S. policy is somewhere in the middle. But even if you accept that, the, the fact of the matter is we have to ask ourselves, why is Japan and Europe, which are dependent more than us on oil in the Middle East, are not uh, assuming more responsibility. You know, we get so excited that J Japanese send, uh, you know, like 10 minesweepers to the Middle East. I mean, that's not really sharing in responsibility, and there is a need really to get them more involved in that. Uh, clearly, the Bush administration had, has done everything wrong in order to achieve that goal. Okay. Um, thank you, Leon. Thanks to the commentators. You do know, Jim, that if there was another Congress of Vienna, it likely would not be in Vienna, whereas, you know, that would be very fun to cover if it was in Vienna. Um, okay, we've got about 25 minutes for questions. Uh, I have a few ground rules. Uh, 
you will have heard them before. Uh, wait for the microphone. Uh, please identify yourself, and please keep your uh, your question in the form of a question, the Jeopardy rule. Uh, and uh, let's see. Um, I have this gentleman here in the red, and then and then we'll go right to you, Winslow. Yeah, thank you. Um, basically, a lot of what's been said, we've known this for a long time. This has been coming. The point that I want to raise, and I want to see what your opinion is, we don't have the forum on which to get the solutions. Part of it is we're stuck in the nation-state mentality and so forth. I noticed nobody mentioned the UN and things of that nature. So what I'm suggesting is we need a forum that includes all the different interests, not necessarily even just by nation state, because a lot of this breaks down internally within the nations. And we need two parts to it. We need an outlook of where we're going, what our objectives are, what the world wants to see. So your question is what, what institutions are what? Here it right. comes, yes. And the two parts are what we want and the transitions that are going to be necessary to get to that point. So basically I'm saying, uh, the the uh, the politics of Real, but the accommodations of Real now. Okay, that's good for all three. Why don't you go first, Leon? Yeah, well, I, I'm. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk um, and in recent years, um, um, especially during the Gulf War, about multilateralism versus unilateralism. Multilateralism is always associated with the idea of the United Nation and uh, uh, the Wilsonian vision of, uh, um, of, of you know, great, of, uh, great international institution that taking into consideration what every nation around the world thinks, you know, like Madagascar or Zambia and so on and so forth. I'm not really interested in that. My main interest is really, I think, as far as the international system is concerned, are the great powers that, you know, make a difference. And I mentioned the United States, uh, Europe, and Russia. I think China and India eventually will have to be accommodated. Uh, there are all kinds of regional powers like uh, South Africa, Brazil, uh, uh, Egypt, you know, and so on and so forth, that uh, Indonesia, that have to be brought into the process. But, um, you know, it doesn't have to be, uh, it, it, you know, this is part of diplomacy. This is where we have diplomacy. And uh, it can be done. Uh, you know, what the United States has been doing since the Gulf War and during the Bush administration is preventing the emergence of, uh, of, of that kind of a system in which great power and mid-sized power work together. The United States basically wanted to be the boss. So it's very difficult in a system like that to encourage changes. Jeff? Uh, well, I, th I think that the first thing you have to do before you start talk about bringing all the great powers in to cooperate, because that raises immediately, in my mind, the problem of competing interests, I think you first got to try to get the, the regional players themselves to cooperate. It's going to be extremely difficult, but if you ever had a resolution to the uh, Palestinian problem, the, the Levant issue would be easier to manage for the rest of the world. And if there were ever any change in the attitude and behavior of the regime in Tehran, that would make an enormous difference to bringing about some semblance of stability in the Gulf. So I'm not at all confident that uh, any outside uh, grouping is going to work unless the, the, the current sources of conflict within the various components of the Middle East are resolved amongst the, by the parties themselves, with our help, of course. 
I, I think it was an omission uh, on all of our parts to leave out international law, at least some uh, uh, consideration of it. Uh, uh, just a few thoughts in answer to your question on that. Um, I think Lebanon clearly failed in its obligation to keep Hobbesy in control of its own state uh, prior to July 12th. Um, I think that Iran sits in flat violation of the U.N. Charter. You, you can't talk about extinguishing another country uh, in, under the U.N. Charter. On the other hand, uh, the Israelis haven't exactly been big fans of international law, as determined by the United Nations in the last uh, few decades, and neither have the Americans. Uh, uh, so the challenge of having all countries in the area abide by international law and really mean it, and it's going to come up big time if we, they try and do some peacekeeping force in Lebanon, uh, is then back to what Leon and Jeffrey are saying is a, a, political, a political challenge. Okay, how do we all get to the point where we all agree to abide by international law? Okay, we had a question here. My name is uh, Winslow Wheeler. I run something called the Strauss Military Forum Project at the Center for Defense Information. I wonder if you agree or disagree that one of the changing paradigms that you haven't discussed is military power, both American and Israeli. Um, I wonder if what's going on in Iraq is showing opponents to the Gulf state regimes just how to make American uh, military facilities, Air Force bases, ships, whatever, irrelevant. And I wonder if um, the attempt by the Israelis to conduct what looked like a strategic bombing campaign to isolate Hezbollah from the Lebanese population having failed and the, uh, the, the, uh, the end of their tactical dominance over their opponents demonstrated by Hezbollah's being able to stand up to them to some degree. I wonder if you agree that that paradigm may be shifting both for us and for the, <clears throat> for the Israelis, and if so, where that might lead. Okay. Leon? Well, I think, and you know, it's not an original observation on my part, the, the fact that uh, we are facing more and more uh, this, uh, this issue of uh, the challenge from uh, uh, non-state, uh, you know, fourth-generation powers uh, that are very much difficult to deal with, you know, if you talk about the United States or Israel for that matter, in which, you know, we define victory as, you know, as basically uh, uh, winning a war by forcing another government to admit that and, you know, either cry uncle or whatever, but, you know, there is end to the war. It's much more difficult to deal, as we see now in, you know, in the West Bank, in Lebanon, in uh, Iraq, to deal with a guerrilla force. And I, I think we, we really don't have any clear answer to that. Uh, one of my, you know, it, it's, I think it's going to be a, a trial and process, uh, a, a trial and uh, error process that's going to take place eventually. And uh, uh, one of the things that I think we have to come to a conclusion based on the Israeli experience, the American experience, the Russian experience, is that the worst, if you want to resolve an issue, the worst thing to do is send military troops and invade that country. Uh, uh, you know, look more solutions like offshore balances, over the horizon, that kind of thing. The, the worst case scenario is to go and invade another country, as we see now in Iraq and other places. And I think we have to take into consideration that in the coming years, and it goes back to 
my presentation in the same way that, you know, it's a little cynical to say that, but that's the reality. In the same way that we, we uh, tolerate in our own domestic life, you know, we have inner cities in America. You know, it's kind of a benign neglect attitude toward, that we have towards those inner cities. Uh, you know, of course, when something happens in uh, Louisiana, we get excited. We have to do something about it. We forget about, you know, after things end, we know forget about it. And I think we, we, we have to assume that there will be many parts of the world that we won't be able to resolve the conflicts and deal with it and bring democracy. Uh, you know, be a lot of failed states. Those are the inner cities of the international system. And we just have to deal with it. We, we have to reach a conclusion that some of this issue will not be resolved. It'll just continue for a very long time. Maybe the West Bank, maybe uh, Paki, Paki, uh, Kashmir, uh, Cyprus has been around for, uh, what is it, 30 years, and we haven't resolved it. So we have to take that into consideration, that there are some parts of the world, like, you know, as I said, the inner cities of the international system that we just have to treat with benign neglect. Uh, there was a question here. Right there. Right there. Uh, Leon, I thought it was interesting that you made the analogy between uh, the United States and Mexico and Europe and uh, Middle East um, for two reasons. One, there are certain parallels, um, the concerns over immigration and oil, um, but two, because uh, it's been a bipartisan practice of U.S. governments to um, deal with Mexico for the most part um, in the context of atten attention deficit disorder. And it's only recently because of immigration issues that um, it's gotten on the radar screen of the U.S. government. And there the high-tech uh, solution seems to be to build a 1,500-mile wall across the border and then plant uh, mines in the Gulf of Mexico and off Baja, California. Um, Europe also has seemed to have that. So on the one hand, why should Europe um, assume responsibilities for its Mexico that the U.S. has not? And second of all, isn't it sort of a um, violation of libertarian principles that Europe would want to get more involved in the Middle East rather than <laughs> stay out, as you're suggesting that the U.S. should? The Europeans as good libertarians. Uh, go ahead. Well, I'm, I'm not sure about Mexico. Uh, I mean, if you go back to the Clinton era, uh, you know, the, the deal that we had to, forget, to forgive the debt of Mexico and, and other financial uh, uh, Packages that we provided Mexico, I don't think suggest that uh, there is an at, at, let's call it attention deficit disorder. I mean, the U.S. is very much uh, as close ties with Mexico. It, uh, even the immigrate, the, the notion that the U.S. allows immigrants from Mexico to enter the United States is a certain policy, because if the United States will stop doing that, uh, Mexico will probably collapse economically. But uh, I, I think there are a lot of – I think it's an interesting um, – and, and I think it, it shows you why the Europeans are so uh, angry because it's – as I said in my book, it's like uh, uh, compare, you know, a civil war in Mexico to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and compare uh, Iraq to uh, – and, and Saddam to Chavez and Venezuela. Imagine that the Europeans would be involved in trying to resolve or not to resolve the civil war in Mexico or trying to depose uh, Chavez and, and send troops to, uh, to Venezuela. Clearly, uh, those are uh, – this is th – these are areas where the effect on – on Europe is tremendous. They just clearly, as people suggest, they just don't have the military uh, resources to deal with it, and that's why they are so uh, frustrated in some respect, whereas the United States has 
the military power to do it, but there's less of an interest to do it. So at some point, these issues have to be ba- balanced, you know, and uh, I, um, I, I don't understand about the libertarian issue. What, what was your point? Uh, <laughs> well, I, I think Europe, um, uh, interestingly enough, no one paid attention to that, but after Iran uh, declared that it's going on with its uranium project, Jacques Chirac actually made a statement saying that, you know, France has nuclear weapons. If anyone will attack us, you know, we'll respond. That was vis-a-vis Iran. That was a clear response to what Iran was doing. I think the French uh, um, applied a very Machiavellian uh, policy with the issue of uh, Algeria, for example. They worked together with the military... A regime in Algeria to prevent uh, the Islamic from coming to power. That was and basically supported the the military in terms of repressing the 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 the, the religious fundamentalist uh, uprising there. So you know they are involved. They are doing things. They have interest to do it, and uh, we should encourage them to get more involved. I mean, I think Lebanon is an excellent example. There isn't any reason why. At this point, I'm talking especially about the Eastern Mediterranean countries, especially taking into consideration France's involvement in Lebanon. Why they don't get in more involved in what's happening in Lebanon and send peacekeeping troops? So. Jim or Jeff, would you weigh in on this? And I mean, I guess I could slightly rephrase the question, but is it not more likely, given the American uh, uh, involvement in Iraq and the, the state of the military in terms of the, where we're focused right now, is it not more likely that a European force or one heavily uh, populated by European forces will ultimately be introduced if a peacekeeping arrangement is, isn't uh, in Lebanon? And doesn't that kind of play into Leon's argument? Well, let's remember, um, it wasn't just Americans who were killed uh, in 1983 in Lebanon. It was French and Italian forces as well. There was also a British component that was not hit as badly. So there's a, there's a lot of, of poignant memories in Europe about Lebanon too. Secondly, I mean, it seems to me that to bring in a... Unless the European force is, has rules of engagement that permit it to be robust... Um, it, 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 it's not going to be very useful and for, for the Lebanese to accept a European force that's robust I think is, is quite a stretch I mean I think you probably need to if, if you had a mixture of, uh, of uh, European and, uh, and some Muslim countries joining in that, that might work but I think it, it has to be very delicately balanced the Europeans you know, as I said in my presentation also think they're overstretched because Britain's in Iraq and the rest are in the, the Balkans or Afghanistan I would venture sort of a modified go back to the gentleman's question sort of a modified Cato take on these things which is I'm a little suspicious of people from far away going someplace to do peacekeeping that doesn't seem to work very well the, the cultural gap alone sort of guarantees I always wonder why when you read about some peacekeeping situation in Africa they say well we've got the Finns and the Canadians and the I mean what do they know about Africa no offense to them but they, uh, 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 um, you know I don't think that the European experience in the Middle East last two centuries has been overly happy I don't think that the Arabs uh, are particularly eager to see the Europeans including the French come back to the Levant. Uh, I don't think it worked out well the first time. I don't think it would work out well the second time. Uh, what I do think has some promise of at least 
bringing order to the area is local intervention. You know, and I, I think that you know even the most hardcore Cato libertarian would a, a, acknowledge that there's something to be said for the U.S. keeping track of Mexico or Canada because it's our own neighbor. Okay, uh, uh, the neighbors of Iraq are other Arab and Muslim countries. The neighbors of Lebanon are, well, plus Israel, other Arab and Muslim countries. They ought to be. And same thing with Darfur. I, I don't really think that it's very promising to imagine that Swedes and Japanese would do a good job. Uh, peacekeeping in Darfur. I do think that some combination of African and Arab Muslim countries might do a good job of at least establishing some sort of order there. So I, I just, again, I, I do worry a lot about, and I think it's in Jeff's comments too, the chances of the Europeans successfully being peacekeepers in Lebanon. Okay. I want to get a few people in the back. I'm always accused, but I can't see very well in the back. So I said there's a hand way, way in the back. Let's uh, see if we can get him, and I'll come back to the front. I'm Jeff Gaynor with Council for America. I wanted to have some additional analysis of the situation in Afghanistan that kind of follows up on what was just being said, because here you had a situation of broad European involvement, as Leon suggested and Jeffrey Kemp suggested, you had cooperation of the countries surrounding Afghanistan. Yet here you have an intervention that's gone on since 2001 without any real resolution. If anything, conflict lately has been greater than it has been for several years. So are we involved in a quagmire also in Afghanistan, or is this the best we can do? That's an excellent question. Leon, do you want to handle that one? or? Uh well, I, I think we are involved in a quagmire if we have this ambition to, uh, you know, bring democracy and remake Afghanistan. If we take into consideration that Afghanistan, it was Afghanistan, that it's, you know, our success with the Northern Alliance in Afghanistan is that we made a deal basically with a bunch of warlords, drug dealers, criminals, and so on, with, who had relationships to Iran and Russia and, and India. And, you know, they helped us get rid of the Taliban, but they never dreamed about uh, bringing democracy into Afghanistan. So if we take into consideration that Afghanistan is what is Afghanistan, we have to live with the warlords there. We just have to send them a message that we don't want, again, a rerun of uh, Osama bin Laden being in. And if you'll do it again, we'll come back again and bomb you to the Stone Ages. I mean, if that message is clear, that's it. We don't need more than that. I think that the problem is that in this country, people are saying, well, you do, we have warlords there and all that stuff, and we have to bring democracy. That's not going to work, I think. Speaking of Stone Age, wait, wait for the mi microphone. Speaking of Stone Age, I'll pick up on that part. Hello, I'm Anne Hyde, and I'd like very much to ask the question of what happened to the consequences of the Balfour Declaration. Could you go into giving just a wee bit of background on that? Okay. And how it how did we? No, you have you have actually three minutes. So, uh, but uh, no, the question actually it relates to okay. So, so clearly, some of what we're dealing with in the Middle East is an outgrowth of the uh, the European powers' earlier involvement, uh, and I think it gets back to the whole question about how how welcome will the Europeans be if they are uh, the kind of replacing us in the Middle East? I think that's a fair question related to that, right? Because the Belford, right? So let's. I've reframed reframed your question slightly. Thank you. Yeah. I, I'm not again. I'm not talking so much here about uh, 
moral issues. I, I'm just arguing, as, uh, as Jim suggested, that uh, when you live in a certain neighborhood, and certainly Europe is closer to the Middle East than uh, the United States is, they have immediate interest there. And that's why I think they have an in- we should give them more incentive. We should also give incentives to the Russians to deal with, you know, a lot of anger in this country that the Russians are getting involved in uh, uh, Belarus and so on. I think that's, you know, they have their own Monroe doctrine, and, you know, that's the responsibility because, you know, it's immediate danger to them to deal with it. So I think as far as Europe is concerned, you know, I'm not romanticizing it, and I'm not uh, saying that I want them to go back there and, uh, you know, and reestablish the empire. I'm just saying that it's in their interest, like it's in our interest to get involved when there are refugees in Haiti and so on, for them to get involved there when it's in their interest to do it. And when it's not, they shouldn't get involved. There are some issues that won't be resolved. Uh. Okay, we have time for one more question. Um Right here on the end, the yellow shirt. Hi, my name is Rich Maser. I have a marketing and business consultant here in D.C. Um, the way I look at it, and I'm, I'm going to ask a question here, diplomacy is a sales game. And you have to have a willing buyer and a willing seller. <laughs> what I see now is maybe there are willing uh, uh, sellers, but there are not willing buyers uh, particularly among the Islamic uh, uh, influence. Now, I would ask also, as far as um, Lebanon is concerned, would there be a war going on in Les- uh, Lebanon now had uh, United Nations number 1559 been enforced? Okay. Two questions there, both important. Let's go this way. Uh, Leon, get the last right, word. Yeah. All right. Well, um, um, would there, would there be would there be a war if the UN resolutions 1559 and Lebanon had been enforced? Uh, um, probably not. I think uh, um, one of the things we deal with in this world is that, and this is again hard for people to, especially Americans, to grapple with. It's, it's not really clear to me that the default mode for human nature is peace. You know, I, I, I think sometimes people want to fight. Uh, history is pretty much war, a little bit of peace, and some more war. Uh, uh, there are great interests and in, in demographic shifts within Lebanon. I mean, the, the percentage of Christians has fallen pretty steadily from a majority in 50 years ago to a pretty substantial minority now. Uh, in that, you know, the, the, the Shia have the most babies. That made a big difference, and the, the Christians have emigrated. So if there were interests inside Lebanon for this, sometimes uh, uh, civil wars, as we discovered our, ourselves in the 19th century, just sort of have to be fought. You've got to, that's, that's the way you find out whether you then have basis for negotiations. Although, certainly, in the last 30 or 40 years, the experience of multi-ethnic countries, including Lebanon, has not been a happy one. Jeff? Uh, no, I agree with that. I mean, I mean, certainly, I think what is different about this crisis the, to the previous ones is the extraordinary ambivalence in the major Arab capitals to Hezbollah's activities. Um, and that does suggest you now have really two, two, two conflicts uh, running in parallel. Uh, in Lebanon, you have the traditional Arab-Israeli conflict that's still going on, and you now have this essentially Sunni-Shia uh, confrontation. And that, I think, adds a, a, both a, a complication to the situation but also an opportunity because I think if this administration were adroit, 
Um, there are ways of building on the concern in uh, Riyadh, in Amman, um, maybe even in Damascus, but certainly in Cairo, about what the Iranians are up to and what Hezbollah stands for that, that, that could work to our advantage. But by excluding any possibility of dealing with the Syrians by not going to Syria, it seems to me the Secretary of State has sent uh, exactly the reverse message. And uh, this is a mistake we have made um, historically. I'm not saying it would have necessarily led to success, but um, you can't expect a country like Syria to be cooperative if, uh, if we are deliberately snubbing them. And uh, look, it, it may well be that at some point in, in time the Syrians make a, a strategic decision of their own to decide to cooperate with us on Lebanon and Iraq. If that were to happen, it would have profound implications because this would essentially isolate Iran. Uh, Iran is the only friend Syria uh, has at the moment, and if, that, if Syria were to walk away, I think it would be an opportunity for all of us to further isolate the Tehran regime. Close with uh, buyer, uh, willing buyers and willing sellers, Leon. Is that what uh, you well, envision? I, I mean, first of all, when you talk about UN resolution, maybe it's a good idea not to pass resolution that cannot be enforced and that you cannot be enforced. I mean, and this, you know, this this is one example of that. Uh, you know, in the 1930s, the League of Nations, as you recall, passed the Brian Kellogg. Uh, uh, um, um, Resolution or whatever it was called, which basically banned the wars, you know, and it wasn't enforced. So, you know, we have to be a little uh, skeptical about that. Uh, I, I think I, I totally agree. I think the U.S. policy with regard to Syria uh, didn't really make any sense at all. Uh, this notion of, on one hand, uh, you know, getting rid of. I mean, Syria. Uh, uh, Jeff is talking about. Uh, bringing the Arabs in. The, Syria entered into Lebanon to impose order uh, in the invitation of the Arab League, you know. And the Arab League, the Saudis won't be able to send troops. I, I doubt that the Egyptians would. Maybe the Syrians will again have to do it, uh, as some people are suggesting. It just didn't make sense what we did. We, we basically kicked the Syrians out without leaving a, a vacuum in Lebanon, uh, playing up this idea of, you know, the Syria revolution and so on which didn't take into consideration that the Shiites are at least 40%. You know, there hasn't been a census actually in Lebanon since uh, the 1930s. We really don't even know. So when they say that the Shiites are 40%, might be even more. So, you know, the policy didn't really make any sense at all based on, you know, real political consideration. And I, I, as, as far as I see it, maybe we should bring the Syrians. By the way, it, interesting anecdote, uh, to, just to conclude here, I don't know if you know, but when, um, when they passed that resolution to bring the Syrians into Lebanon as part of the Arab League, the Taif Agreement, and so on, uh, the Syrians actually wanted to take control over southern Lebanon. And the Israeli government considered that and decided not to allow them to do it. Now, in retrospect, if you think about it, that would have been a great idea if the Syrians would have been in southern Lebanon because, because of the relationship with Israel, since it's a state, they would have prevented the guerrilla uh, ter terror against Israel because they, knew, they would have known that if that would happen, Israel will attack them. So, you know, you had some kind of... But Isra the Israelis refused to do it, and there was a vacuum there, and uh, Hezbollah and... So. All right, well, with that, I want to thank you all for coming. Another round of applause for our uh, panelists. If I can... Um
If I can ask you all one favor, Leon will be signing his books. Will you please allow him to exit exit the room and get up to his place of honor at the uh, book signing table? We do have the uh, uh, lunch upstairs set up for you, so please join us upstairs. Thank you very much for coming.